0: Hello pod, I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to our spoiler special podcast dedicated to Christopher Nolan's intergalactic planetary blockbuster Interstellar. Over the next 90 minutes or so, Team Empire will be delving into Nolan's sci-fi stunner in great detail, which is why it is a spoiler special, of course. So if you haven't seen Interstellar yet, or if you don't want to know what happens, then stop listening now still here good then we can begin before we get started let's hear from the man who made the film Uh, it is of course chris nolan now as he did with the dark Knight rises nolan politely declined the opportunity to discuss major spoilers so close to the film's release date absolutely his right of course not all filmmakers are happy to do so but he did talk about the film in general terms with myself and james dyer and he had interesting things to say enjoy Uh, We're delighted to be joined on the Emperor Podcast by Christopher Nolan. Hello, sir. How are you? Hello. I'm fine, thank you. Excellent, excellent. Uh, Now, the science concepts in this film are quite complex, especially for the layman or the mind-bogglingly stupid like myself. Uh, (laughs) Did you have to put your actors through a kind of science boot camp so they would be au fait with the the, the, the theories? I mean, really, my job as a director is to
1: give the actors all the information they need, whatever the genre. And this really wasn't any different. Every film has a rule set. Every film has a set of uh, technical aspirations, if you like, that you have to talk the actors through. Mm. Um, in the case of Interstellar, I was able to put them in touch with Kip Thorne, our executive producer. He's one of the great astrophysicists. Um, so he was able to sort of give them the direct uh, set of knowledge, if you like. But, but really, it was just about a rule set. And truthfully, every film has that.
2: Mm-hmm. It feels very much like a kind of a, sort of a wistful look back at the the sort of space race of the fifties and sixties. Was mm-hmm. that was that something that meant a lot to you as a child?
1: Yeah, I mean, I grew up in the seventies, and, and the space, the idea of space exploration was still extremely exciting to people. I do remember the first space shuttle flight very very clearly, and I think kids' highest aspiration, you know, job wise, was to be an astronaut mm-hmm. back then still, so, which is no longer the case. And. Uh, I think the film does try to really, you know, get across the idea that perhaps we should be getting back to some of that idea of exploration. I remember very early in my brother's involvement with the, uh, the script, we were in Hong Kong preparing um, the Dark Knight. We went to see an IMAX film uh, that Tom Hanks had produced about exploring the moon. Mm. And we were, we were both really appalled to to realize, actually with my DP Wally Pfister as well, whose, whose father had... Uh, produced some of the television broadcasts of the, the moon landings. We were all appalled to realise that within the body of that film, they felt compelled to address the idea that perhaps the moon landings were faked. Mm. Um, and obviously they shot it down, but but just the fact that they felt that they had to even talk about that in, a, in an IMAX film about you know exploring the moon, we found it really shocking, actually. So it's something we really wanted to, to get into the film, this idea of, you know, it's time to get back out there
2: it feels like there's a real sense of disappointment there, like the redacting of the textbooks, the sort of broken Apollo lander, the dusty yeah. space shuttle. There's a <laughs> sense of, you know, where is the NASA that I grew up with?
1: Yeah. I mean, an, another thing that, that happened in, in prep on the film was Emma and myself. You know, we went up uh, in the hills of Griffith Park and watched the... Space shuttle get flown in to Los Angeles on the back of a 747 and they did a sort of low low-level circuit of the city Before they landed and took it to the science center for its final resting place mm. And there were hundreds of people up on this hill with flags in you know, American flags and cheering and and it was a very emotional experience actually very emotional and You were looking at this Modified 747 with this great craft mm. on it and thinking we're looking at one of the finest examples of collective human endeavor and the positive side of what we as a a people can achieve together. And that just isn't there anymore. I mean, Mm. not not the way it was. Uh, And I think it'd be nice to get back to some of that.
2: Is that something you want to instill, for example, in your children? Because, I mean, you shot the film under the name Flora's Letter, and it does feel very much like that. Well, I think, I mean, you know,
1: McConaughey's character, you know, Matthew plays a a father, and uh, Cooper's relationship to his kids is one of the things that drew me to the script in the first place. I'm a father of four myself, and uh, it was something I very strongly related to. And I think the sense of childlike kind of wonderment, the idea of being fascinated by space and by physics, Um, is something that was very important to me as a kid, and it's one of the reasons I made the film. And so I hate to think that that my kids aren't getting that, and I certainly try to instill that in them as best I can.
2: So Inception is a film, I think, that that it asks a lot of questions, it dangles answers, and it sort of leads you to sort of reach for them. But this, it seemed like you took pains to explain a lot of the events, Mm. you know, to use the science to actually explain where people are. Was that, you know, a sense so that people didn't get lost amidst all the sort of theoretical physics or...? Well, I
1: think they've, I mean, it's interesting, they're very different stories in a sense. And I think that Interstellar is certainly a very simple story. The issues it deals with uh, are incredibly complicated and mind-blowing. You know, these these things that real-world physics allows for. So, for example, this is the first film in which my fascination with time and the subjectivity of time has been, you know, not just a structural indulgence or a you know, structural fascination. It's actually a part of the story. Um, the story is very linear, but time itself is slippery in the film mm. for very solid, real-world physics reasons. And so, uh, I think if there's an antagonist in, in Interstellar, it is time, actually. And so, there are a lot of senses in which this is a very, very simple story that has very complex ramifications. So, as far as ambiguity goes, that's always. My purpose with ambiguity is to always be as specific about what the ambiguity is, to be as unambiguous about the ambiguity as possible. <laughs> and in the case of Interstellar, it's not so much about ambiguity. It's it's more about really trying to pass through this experience and uh, get something out of it at the end of the day. And so uh, I definitely took the decision that I didn't want to be evasive at all. I want there to be answers to questions in there because, uh, There's a lot to take in. There's a lot that the film asks you to do in terms of absorbing uh, what's going on and and paying attention to it. And uh, we wanted the answers to be there for the audience. Whether they pick them up, watching the film the first time or not, I think people are going to watch the film in very different ways and on very different levels. And, and that's something that I, I really enjoy in filmmaking as well.
2: Well, we can talk about physics a little bit. I was going to say, you've mentioned time quite a lot. The idea of gravity as something that sort of penetrates time as a, as a concept, I think, is something that certainly in, in film and TV, we've not really... I mean, I've seen episode, every episode of Star Trek. I don't remember that one. Um, <laughs> Is this, is this uh, you know, something new, essentially, that we're with? Which part of it? You mean gravity and its relationship? Yeah, because obviously time. time being relative is something that's often explored, but gravity is something that can pierce time. Well, it can cross
1: dimensions time. Yeah. No, that was one of the ideas that... When I came to the script, my brother had been working on it for some years with uh, Steven Spielberg attached to direct. When I came on and read it and, and talked to him about it, he'd, he'd spent a lot of time working with Kip and introducing a lot of really amazing ideas. Far too many, and, and I was—I uh, sort of came to the table as the grown-up, kind of pouring a bucket of cold water, everything, and going, "Look, no one's going to take in all this stuff." Um, and so, what I did is I sifted through and really tried to find the the core things that Joan had been trying to get at. And one of the things that I found in there was this idea that that gravity can cross dimensions, mm-hmm. uh, and it wasn't something I knew. And I talked it through with Kip, and it's uh, real world physics as best as they can understand or predict it. Gravitational theory in physics is what was the most important and underlying, you know, the most underlying consistent thread of, of real world physics in, in Jonah's original draft. And what I tried to do in rewriting it is make that absolutely front and center the, the point of the story, if you like.
0: How easy is it for you to grasp these concepts the first time around? Uh, do this kid have to show you on a whiteboard uh, again and again?
1: Well, it's interesting. What I found too difficult to wrangle with had to come out of the script because the truth is I didn't want to dive in and know too much and Mm. which is a very good excuse for not doing my homework on theoretical (laughs) physics But but it is it is true. I said to Kip, look if if I get a sort of crash course in in physics from you Then I'm no longer an effective representative for the audience Um, I tried to stick with my kind of ten-year-old's knowledge the uh, grasp from watching Carl Sagan's Cosmos, you know, yes. in, in 1980 or whatever. Those are the ideas that I felt, okay, that's fair enough for an audience to have to absorb. Things like relativity in its most simple form, the idea of a black hole. Mm. Um, the idea of a wormhole was new to me, uh, but Kip managed to explain it in very simple terms, and so I felt I could get it across to the audience. Mm. But I really had to be the representative, representative of the audience, and so I didn't want to delve too deeply. You know, you would sit there with Kip. Um, The other thing you would find is that there are certain things that as you would come to understand them, well, I'll give you the example is I'd had in one draft, I'd had a notion of trying to have a character move faster than the speed of light, have a spaceship go faster than the speed of light. And Kip told me this is absolutely impossible according to the theory of relativity and he tried to explain why. I did about two weeks back and forth with him arguing the toss, just saying, you know, why not this, why not that? And at the end of that, I. I sort of got a glimpse, you get these kind of intuitive understandings, these kind of glimpses of okay, I think I've got a bit of a sense of how, you know, time is is related to, you know, mass and all these things, and so why it becomes impossible. And then right when I sort of grasped that, I said, Okay, I, I see why you can't go, you know, faster than the speed of light, and he said he said, yes, on local scale, as opposed to a cosmic scale. It's, it's like, <laughs> oh, great. So just about get my head around that. There's a whole other level of, you know, there was one other one where we were dealing with what's called Minkowski space, which is those diagrams you see where there's a, a flat plane representing three-dimensional space with gravity wells in it. Mm. And I said something about the, the depth of the well relating to the strength of the gravity. And Kip thought about it for a second and said, yes, that's what we let you guys think. <laughs> Or something <laughs> and I said. Okay, there's a point at which yeah, you just have to let them have their world and and their uh, trust their brilliance. Uh, but Kip is a great communicator, and he was able to explain to me the things that I did need to know. So there won't be a, a Cliff Notes version of the film. Ah, uh, actually, uh, Kip is publishing a book. Uh, a very it's a brilliant book, and it's it's huge. I mean, it, it addresses every single science issue in the film and where we're absolutely on the science and where it's speculation as he terms it reasonable speculation or wild speculation I had a couple of wild speculations in there that i, I went around with him a few times and we managed to turn into reasonable speculation <laughs> um, but it, it's a brilliant book for anybody interested in uh, in physics i mean it, it's got as much science as you care to to delve into but uh it, it's really pretty magnificent that he's taken that on
0: fantastic i'll pick it up chris Mullen, thank you so much for joining us thank you thank you Christopher Nolan there, the most dapper film director in the business. The interview with Jessica Chastain will be coming up at the end of the podcast, but first you're gonna hear the four of us wit her on for ages. Uh, by the four of us, of course I mean Dan Jolin, who was on set of Interstellar for Empire, wrote the feature and is our expert on all things Christopher Nolan. Hello. Hey, Chris. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Fantastic. James Dyer, the first Empire writer to see Interstellar, the man who wrote Empire's five-star Interstellar review. Hello, James. Guilty as charged. (laughs) Listen, that that wasn't a leading question. You didn't need to be so defensive immediately. (laughs) Uh, And Helen O'Hara, who uh, is, is fair to say... Probably not as taken with Interstellar as Dan or James.
3: That, that's fair. I think I'm I'm probably erring more on the three Sorry. You could call me a Nolan skeptic, and you wouldn't be hater. The word wrong. is hater. I'm a not n- a hater.
0: A Nolan skeptic.
3: Yeah, I, I'm I'm big I'm big fan of the Prestige. Uh-huh. I like Love Batman Begins a lot. I think yep. it's really underrated. Uh-huh. Uh, obviously, Memento. Everybody loves Memento. Just a little bit down on the Dark Knight Rises. I'm a bit down on Interstellar. Interesting. I don't love in- Inception either. Anyone
0: <gasps> gets out. You put in the no. Get in out for out Nolan. Now. It's weird. You, you say everyone likes Memento, but it's kind of weird. I, I did that experiment recently where I put it in a bucket and then poured some Diet Coke on it and nothing happened. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> mm. So what we're doing for this podcast, we do it occasionally for our spoiler specials, is we uh, wait until the film comes out you guys see it, you send in your questions and then we tackle your thoughts, your concerns and your comments. Okay, so let's go through it. Uh, I'm going to go, I'm going to start off the very first question we received and then go up sure, in, in order. Uh, so this is from Alex Boltwood. Who says, uh, someone please explain the interstellar ending. Humans have developed light years since McConaughey left Earth and can now travel in space stations. Why has no one gone to help Anne Hathaway yet? Surely if they've time to play baseball and make a museum replica of Cooper's house, they may have thought to send someone through the wormhole to help her. Not wait for McConaughey to magically appear, meet back up with his daughter, and then be the first one to decide to go and help Brand. What gives? Well, that's just picking holes, isn't it? <laughs> Wormholes, clearly. Yes.
3: Do they know about Brand? Has that word gotten back through the wormhole before he gets there? I'm assuming that he's been debriefed before he meets up with the the elderly Murph because she obviously knows about Brand by that point. Mm. Maybe that's been passed on to her. Mm-hmm. But but maybe no one knew what would happen to that mission, mm. um, apart from the, the data getting back, um, until until he reappeared miraculously near Saturn.
4: Yeah, I think that's about right. We we don't have any sense whatsoever that the that they know what has happened to the mission, mm-hmm. beyond the the uh, you know the messages via gravity or gravitational waves that uh, Cooper sent. There does seem to be a certain
0: laissez-faire attitude though. Once they wake up, and, once he wakes up, and they get his information, then they know the brand is still out there. Hopefully, still out there at least. Assuming, of course, well, what they're, shows they're us. almost
4: they're almost at the wormhole, aren't they? By yes. this point, yeah. So, so.
0: Why, why haven't they sent someone already? They seem to give it a couple of days and just let Coop meander around. And
3: it does seem like they're pre- proceeding in caravan to the wormhole, but haven't necessarily sent much in the way of scouts through it. Mm. Um, I mean, I, I assume they're proceeding in caravan, and they're not just staying in their cylindrical orbit, Mm. orbital vessels just around the sun in in a sort of E&M Bank style. It took
2: the launcher, was it, two years to get to Saturn? Mm. Let's assume that the big rotating space station thing is slower than the launcher, but it looks like (laughs) 40 odd years has passed, so it's really, really slow.
3: Yeah, maybe.
4: Why would it be slower? There's no gravity.
2: It it may have less powerful thrusters, Dan. Hmm. Or maybe it's reduced to impulse power. Okay.
4: I, mean, I think I think actually the way they power to get into there is actually they slingshot they use actually use gravity, you can slingshot around the sun and you can I don't slingshot think they do. And that Isn't
3: that how you travel back in time to save that the whales? That is exactly
2: oh. how you
4: travel back in time God. to save the whales but uh, yes, no, I,
2: I'm fairly certain they, that going near the sun is bad I seem to recall someone telling me that at school once uh, uh, Icarus, I think his name was <laughs> Anyway, doesn't matter You went to school with Icarus? Yeah, he was a nice guy, weird
4: had a fascination with looks. wax Or how about this, it's dramatically better Okay yeah, it's dramatically better to have for it Coop. to happen like that. But mm. what is what is Coop gonna get when he gets to
0: Brand's planet? Because she said in her Okay, a big kiss a big old kiss. Mm. Because uh, in the uh, original script, which is online now, uh, or not, you know, if you know where to look, uh, <gasps> there was a a romance or more of a romance mm. between Coop and Brand than there is in the finished film. I'm glad they basically they it. got
3: it on. Is what you're saying. I mean, I'm we're talking clothes floating in zero g. It's what we're talking about. Zero wow. g
0: sex, which I would personally quite like to see, just from
3: <gasps> just just, just no, as a, like a
0: space dogger.
3: Just as
2: no, I'm not a space dogger. It's and it's docking. Well, moving away from the space sex, I think let's go back to this question as it began. I think one of the things that that perhaps is a little bit up in the air is is how the relative time dilation effects. The narrative of the film so the proximity to the black hole obviously compresses time so when they go down to the water planet you know a very small period of time passes and a very long period of time passes in orbit and therefore back on earth the ice planet is further away from the black hole so we can assume if there is a time dilation effect it's greatly less than that and then the planet where anne hathaway ends up uh, with the sort of rocky planet i think is they mentioned is even further away yeah, from the black yeah, hole so we yeah. can assume very little time dilation or none at all therefore if 40 years pass back in our solar system you can assume that a similar amount of time probably passes for Anne Hathaway so while we see her at the end while she's building her sort of can thing, maybe that's like a projection maybe that's what he imagines because in theory she may well
0: be 40 years dead.
2: Does that make sense? Well,
0: yes, she could be dead, but um th- no
3: there is a theory going around that that the, everything that happens after he exits. The singularity yeah. is a death dream. I don't think that's no. true.
2: We're back in Inception territory now, aren't we? We're back now, in Inception we? territory.
3: Was the
0: top <laughs> spinning at the end? I'm confused. It's such a cliche. Yeah. I, I, no, I, yeah, no, I read no that end. theory. No. I read the website in which okay. I, I, I yeah, read. Here's,
4: here's here's another one. Okay, the planets orbit gargantua the black hole Mm -hmm. yeah miller's planet the water one is the closest it has the tightest orbit hence time dilation time compresses as james put it or time slows there to a great degree by the way i'm holding my hands up here i've got it in front of me i've got a book called the science of interstellar by kip thorne renowned uh, physicist and i'm taking this from him Mm -hmm. this is not from the script this is from him because uh, earlier in the film they say it's going to take months to get to man's planet which is the ice planet yeah Mm. but towards the end of the film man's planet is much closer to Gargantua which means maybe it has an orbit that brings it close to like oh. Oh, that they're away orbit. from. Okay. not even that more of a swirly swirly orbit a swirly, swirly there's orbit. a diagram of how Kip Thorne okay. imagines it in, in this so, actually really I, interesting book Professor Jolin I have a yes. question for you uh, so if oh sorry sorry no, I'm hang on. let me, okay, let me on, finish on. so Edmund's planet which is the one we see at the yeah. end that could have a similar orbit this is me mm. guessing this is my speculation which brings it closer into gargantua which means time could slow for brand or you know mm-hmm. by so what we're seeing is when she arrives but maybe Time slows for her, so 40 years wouldn't necessarily pass for her by the time Cooper returns.
3: Ooh, good theorising.
4: This is good. I like
2: this theory. Um, so, so just to be clear, the planets orbit the black hole. Does the, the local sun orbit the
4: black hole? There is thing? no sun. There has to be There's daylight. The, no, all the light comes from the photons which disperse mm. around the edge of the black hole. Well, I did not know that.
3: Is it the accretion disk or something? That's called? correct, the Ooh. accretion disk. Wow. I've never
4: seen one before, no one
2: has, but I'm guessing it's a white hole. <laughs> anyway,
4: so there you go. Any
2: excuse to... <laughs> Wait, go
0: on, do your charger.
4: No, I'm done. As well. I'm not no, sure?
2: sure? No, we did see this was a legitimately relevant conversation.
3: We're talking about
4: relative time dilation.
3: One question I have, though, does he deal with spaghettification in the book? In
4: terms of how, is this a question of how does Cooper survive? How yes. do Cooper and Tars survive yes. inside a of black coal? eddies. Okay. I think, actually, this is covering off some of the other questions. we. Oh, got yeah, sets, yeah. Isn't yeah. It? So so if you ask this question, then here's the answer. So this is cool. Right, so when Carl Sagan wrote Contact, right? He yes. was doing Contact. He originally wanted Ellie Arroway... Uh, Hard, sure. Easy for you to say. Ellie Arroway, played by Jodie Foster in the film, to go to Vega, uh, not Vegas, Vega, where it happens in Vega stays in Vega, as we mm-hmm. learned from that film, through a black hole. Okay. And Kip Thorne said, no, 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 because he was mates with Carl Sagan. He said, no, 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 you can't, you can't make it a black hole because she would just be killed. So it's got to be a wormhole. Mm-hmm. And that's how wormholes got into popular culture sure. through that. But more research has been done since and more, or rather further discoveries, whatever, and they've figured out it is conceivable that you could survive in a black hole. If it had what they call, and this is a phrase used in the film by Romilly, a gentle, in inverted commas, singularity. Okay. But there's also the fact that Cooper doesn't necessarily, he goes to the singularity but he doesn't go further in. He gets caught by the 5th dimensional beings in the tesseract which is yeah, the yes. hypercube and taken outside of our universe into the bulk into what is known as yes exactly the bulk from the brain which is short for membrane B-R-A-N-E into the bulk by these bulk beings I so he, he could survive for as long as he did is conceivable and then he was effectively rescued he was plucked out from possible further destruction okay. by
0: by the 5th dimensional beings the
4: prophets, okay, the wormhole
3: no Lilo.
2: Mm. the ones that Nick refers to as the
4: transdimensional love beings yes, <laughs> yes. or or humans or humans of a indeterminate future mm. okay as as Cooper theorizes yes all right okay I'm sure
0: we've broken yeah you' broken me okay my role in his podcast is basically just to ask the questions mm. and and nod occasionally which okay. doesn't come across very well on a podcast but but there you go yeah. uh, so Cooper gets to brand James thinks she could be dead which is a real bummer um, <laughs> you know do uh, you think she might be 40 years older presumably then also they'll have hundreds of babies and other people now running around because that's what if, she'll be doing once she'll, defrosted be, she'll the, be setting yeah. up the,
4: the embryos yeah, yeah. I yeah. mean we see her we see her I think very soon after the point of her arrival yeah, whether, she's building whether, the whether can, that's a, yeah. Yeah. yeah whether that's a flashback or whether that's current because of the changing orbit of Edmund's planet, I, I've, I have no idea. Or she
0: could have done what Matt Damon did and uh, put herself into sleep for a little bit. On and the then we'll off go.
3: chance that somebody's going to come for her. Yeah. yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. But think she thinks it. that she thinks that she's alone. She thinks no one's going to come for her. That she thinks that, that, that Cooper's dead. That Tars is gone. Everyone's dead. And the news of what they're doing will never get back to Earth. Mm-hmm. So therefore, she's got to proceed with. Ah, her but she planet.
3: believes in the power of love, as we she learn does. in the film's worst speech. Um, and therefore, we'll be certain <laughs> of somebody turning up.
2: It is a shame that wasn't on the soundtrack. <laughs> I think if that if that had come on at that particular point, or in fact during the credits at the end, then then
4: you know which which version. Oh, take your pick. Who you Lewis in the news one? I would have said so. Okay. Yeah, not the Jennifer Lo- uh, Jennifer
0: Rush well, one. Well, mm. you
3: see that would that yeah. would link it back into Back to the Future. Another. Film we could have had one time. version
0: at the be- beginning yeah. and another one over the credits. Well, but the uh, uh, Frankie Goes to Hollywood version.
2: That's also good. All right, well, let's not take the piss. That's a good one. Yeah, I would Chris that, number one.
0: Yeah. Anyway. All right. Okay. So I think we've we've suitably answered that question. Here's the next one from Malika Sheikh, who says, Do you think this will give McConaughey a second Oscar?
3: I've been thinking about this, and I kind of almost would have preferred somebody less manly in that role. Um, I, I get that he was going for a sort of Chuck Yeager figure, um, Chuck Yeager, of course, was the man who broke the sound record He was the model for all of He's basically still the model for all airline pilots You know, the sort of mm. all shucks kind of demeanour, the very, very calm voice That's mm. all totally modelled on Chuck Yeager He used to sit there in these test planes that were as they were crashing, going Right, yeah, well, en- engine two has failed I'm just going to try um, turning that off and back on again Yeah, no, that's still out uh, I'm spinning towards the ground, we've just passed 2,000 feet Just trying engine one again No, that's still not working. You know, mm. really just completely calm, completely in control, even when he totally wasn't. And I think that's very much what they're going for with Cooper. But it almost doesn't quite fit in a hyper-automized future where you've got these super-powered robots. You know, it's al- he almost suggests... That's kind of
4: the point, he- isn't it? It's, it's, it's kind of Nolan's playing with an American archetype, isn't he?
3: Yeah, but it, it, it's sort of, again, it, it's one of these things, and it, it's it's like a the sort of the, the, the sense early on that humanity has moved away from science, and it's one of those things that doesn't quite sit right with with humanity f- for me, or the way I see the world.
4: Frontiersman, isn't he? That's and I the get thing. that. Again, now, he's the guy that you need, who doesn't quite fit in, to go and open up new areas I don't us. have
3: a problem with him being a go-getter who wants to get out into space, that I get. What I do have a problem with is him, is essentially the film implies that he's, you know, flying by the seat of his pants, there's a line about, I can navigate around, you know, that and swing us round into orbit around the planet. No, you can't. You're going to be sitting there doing maths. That's how you're going to get it. It's not about flying by the seat of your pants at this point. This is not a dogfight in in NAM. Um, so it was those kind of things that kind of upset me slightly about him. I feel like it needed to be, he needed to either be more Jaeger and more evidently in control and more evidently scientific or less Jaeger and more bookish.
4: He is scientific, though. He's, he comes up with the, the the slingshot idea, doesn't he? He comes up with that. But,
3: but again, he's not he's not coming up with the maths of it. He's just sort of merrily saying it. Anyway. I have
4: literally no idea what the question was. Uh, Will this
0: one a uh, second so ask it from Matthew McConaughey?
2: I don't think so,
0: personally. Uh, I
2: think it's a great performance. I really liked it. I think Hans right. It is very Chuck Yeager it's, it's lifted straight out of the right stuff, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Philip Kaufman's yeah, film. Sam, which is shepherd's performance. Uh, yeah, yeah, which is a big influence on, on Nolan. I think he played it wonderfully. I think, in particular, the scene where he uh, comes back up from the water planet uh, and watches his sort of. Entire life sort of unspooled by proxy without him over the video is absolutely heartbreaking. And that shot to his face when he's just contorted with grief—it's, uh, I mean, it, it, I think it's a, it's a great performance. Um, mm. Whether or not it will be uh, Oscar-worthy, I think to a certain extent depends on the the field.
4: Two it? years or in a row is very rare, as I well. I would say so. But.
3: It's a weirdly open year, actually. I, I don't know who's going to dominate the Oscars at this point. Um, mm. He might sneak in a nomination, mm. but I don't know that he's going to win. Uh, my money early on would be on another film, but theoretical physics, I think it's going to be hard to get past Eddie Redmayne playing Stephen Hawking.
0: Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. James from Rayleigh, Rayleigh, let's say Rayleigh, uh, says, I loved the film, but did you think the emotional payoff of the reunion of Coop and Mirth, which had been the driving force throughout the whole film,
4: was really quick and unsatisfying? It felt like she was saying, nice to see you, Dad, but off you go. Don't want no. to ever see you again. No, I really liked it. Yeah. It was actually unexpected uh, and interesting for it. It kind of fed into, there was the line earlier um, about, you know, why do we, why do, when, you, when you're when you dying, why do you, you gather your children around you? And that's what she's doing. Mm-hmm. And then her dad walks in, and he's younger than some of her children, you know. And she's like, no, no, actually, you shouldn't be here now. You you need to be somewhere else, you know. Uh, and, and I think that's a really interesting way to handle the emotional reunion. And, and I think it had much greater impact for that.
0: James and Dan, you're, you're both parents. Did this, did the coop Murph relationship Hit you harder than I should than point most. out, we are not parents of the same
2: child. You're not of the same no. child. No. Uh, yeah. No. I. I. I very much together. I thought. I mean, it's a film about the relationship between a father and his daughter all the way through, and uh, I think that resonates all the way through the film right up until the end. As Dan said, I think it was very mm. unexpected. I absolutely had him written off as, you know, black hole fodder. Uh, so that that whole sequence was a, very much a surprise to me. But no, I didn't. I didn't find it particularly quick and unsatisfying and I kind of understood her point with it that exactly as Dan says this is about her and her children and his you know, his place is elsewhere mm-hmm. and no parent should ever have to watch their child die I thought was well, yeah. a fair
3: point It's interesting how that changed from the original script which had um, him getting back and there was a, still a deathbed scene but it was his great great grandson um, mm, hundreds so of years later, hundreds yeah, I of years later yeah. um, and I thought that was interesting that the, the original version he didn't keep his promise and in Ooh. this one he did um, I'm not sure if that's more Hollywood or, or not but <laughs> it's uh, yeah, it's kind of an interesting change and also of course in the original version Murph was a boy mm. um, I think it is more interesting to have a father-daughter story just because as I've banged on about endlessly father-son stories yeah. enough
4: there are a lot yeah. of consider them consider
3: other options yeah. people
4: isn't it like half, half the scientist characters in the film are women I suppose that's true which is also good I guess cards on table time for me. Uh, you
0: know, I think as I said in the regular podcast last Friday, it, the film didn't move me emotionally. It left me a little bit cold. Uh, I'm completely capable of empathy and emotion, so it wasn't it wasn't that. Or the fact that I'm not a parent that that probably had, maybe has something to do with it. But did anyone else feel that Murph's anger about being left behind was well, maybe a little bit unrealistic? I didn't.
2: No? I I I've talked about this. I wonder whether or not taken on its own whether. The film does enough to earn the emotional resonance for people who don't bring it with them. So, if you're not a parent, does that relationship with them resonate as much? Being a parent, I can't say either way. I thought it was incredibly powerful and really moved me. I found it quite tearful actually when he leaves her and how resentful she is of it. And I I very much understood it. If one's not a parent, do they? I don't know.
3: I do think it's weird that when we meet her as an adult, she seems a very, you know, intelligent. Mm. Sensible being with with the same priorities, frankly, that her dad did. She's mm. she's working on the very same project. Yeah. So it seems weird that you know after the age of about eighteen or or twenty one that she still doesn't get in touch. That's that seemed a bit odd to me. I can absolutely understand it as a teenager. You know, you're resentful of everything anyway. But but to 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 grow up and, and not forgive him seems odd. Mm. Not and I don't even think it's a matter of forgiveness because I think when she get becomes that adult that she does become. I think she realizes it's not a thing f- for forgiveness. It's a, a thing for understanding. I don't know.
4: I I had no problem with it whatsoever. It was she. She, she was not. Again, it's a. Uh, it's. I suppose you could say it's. Uh less predictable to me it's mm-hmm. more interesting is there's an emotional complexity to it mm-hmm. it shows that she's a more complicated character mm-hmm. perhaps than um she might otherwise have been i think that uh well, not from not speaking from personal experience but i think sometimes irrational anger gets carried in families for a very long time uh you feel things more deeply they affect you more deeply i mean you know there are people out siblings out there that refuse to talk to each other for decades upon decades because of something someone said at some family gathering sometime you know it's you know it's, we are we are complex and emotional creatures and i don't have any issue at all with with murphy's reaction to uh, to her dad like that i just think it's good storytelling yeah really well acted as well yeah yeah
3: yeah she's terrific
0: both murphs yes actually yeah. all three waiting. murphs mm. All three, (laughs) three yeah, Kenzie Farley, Jessica Chastain, and Ellen Burstyn, Mm. uh, who is seen in the introduction of the film, isn't she? She,
4: Actually, interesting that introduction. If everyone's, this is widely known now, but uh, uh, if I may, yeah, with a a bit of trivia, a bit of Easter egginess, absolutely. One of the big influences on the on on the film was Ken Burns' documentary um, about the Dust Bowl, which is called The Dust Bowl. (laughs) <laughs> and, um, How did you come up with the name? I, I, I have no idea. There were a lot of first-hand accounts of life in the real Dust Bowl in America in the 1930s and they're used in the film. Yes. they're at the beginning of the film so those are yeah. real people talking about their real experience in the 1930s but then Nolan spliced in Alan Burst Burstyn talking about you know the Did fictional s- future dust bowl Did he splice it in anyone else or was it just her? Do you know what I'm not sure I know definitely her there may have been some other actors spliced in I'm not 100% sure on that so I don't want to say It made me think of uh, When Harry met Sally
0: at that beginning <laughs> It didn't quite go in that same direction but uh, it made me think of that uh, Here's a question from Lucian Waugh Daily who asks, uh, why did Nolan and the studios choose not to include Matt Damon in a marketing campaign since everyone knew he was in the movie and he has such a big role? Um, I don't think everyone did know he no, was in the that's movie. No, a,
4: that's, a, that's a pretty big assumption made in the question. It got out there that Matt Damon was in it. If you wanted to find out that Matt Damon was in it, you could have found mm-hmm. out. I don't think it was necessarily widely known. He was mm-hmm. listed on the IMDb, but nobody knew who he played. And mm-hmm. the IMDb quite often has people on cast lists that don't make it to the finished film. Mm-hmm. I did ask Nolan directly about Matt Damon and his role in the film, and Nolan conceded that uh, the the secret was out; that they weren't, you know, necessarily trying to keep it a big super secret. But he said he did not want to discuss the Matt Damon character because he wanted it to feel, for as many people as possible, like a discovery mm. when it happened in the film, like a surprise. Yeah. And I, you know, I'm I'm in no way against surprise cameos. I always like what they can bring to a movie, and I think Matt Damon was very interesting casting because. Of the kind of person he usually gets cast as, and he has this very sort of square jawed American hero kind of a look which creates extra tension when man goes the way he does. I-,
3: I felt like he had Space Crazy tattooed in his forehead when he turned up um, <laughs> a little bit. I thought he was going to do a full Buscemi, uh in Armageddon on us. Um, and indeed, he kind of went that way. And it, I don't know, it, it, wouldn't it have been more sensible for man to, I don't know, admit that he slightly massaged the figures and just get a lift off world. Why didn't he, do you think? Mm,
0: you would think, but then again, as you said, he was uh, he was space crazy. I felt <laughs> I felt with that character it was a bit more of a screenwriting construct designed to create jeopardy and to precipitate the the third act and the uh, going into the tesseract. Because they would never have gone into that had it not been for him tampering with the space station the space station blowing up and, and whatnot. Um, it felt to me more like a construct than a character, and it felt like a version of a character that we've seen done multiple times before in movies like this, but better. For example, obviously, Hal in 2001 and even Pinbacker mm. in Sunshine. Sunshine. Mm-hmm. But um, but I think it was very well played. Yeah. I can see why they didn't release it, because the minute you know that Matt Damon is in the film, the minute you trumpet it loud and clear that Matt Damon is in the film, you're going, well, we're two hours in and there's no Matt Damon (laughs) but there's this guy they keep talking about Dr. Mann who's the best of us the best uh, of us he's the very best of us and uh, his name can't be a metaphor Uh, so so who could that possibly be should we ever
4: meet him actually um, he's, he's, his picture's on the wall in the early part of the mm. film but the camera never gets yes. it in focus the camera never focuses There's a, I you even have that, Michael Caine yeah. going oh, there he is there he is right there but the camera never focuses on the picture no, no, so you no, just no, like no. That's, that's, my, that's Dr. Man that is yes that's Michael Caine yes
0: thanks for clarifying size of a tangerine <laughs> he, had, he had a face the size of a ruby uh, right Uh, So there you go Uh, Next question From Connor Jackson asks, what was the point of Tuffer Grace's character? Oh, poor oh. Tuffer Grace. Oh, he
3: was just happy to be there. <laughs> he was, yay!
0: i forgive him for Spider-Man 3. Do you know
3: what? <laughs> the, can I just say very quickly, the one I feel sorry for is David Yellowo, who keeps getting cast in big films, Rise of the Planet of the Apes, Lincoln, <laughs> this, and he's, he doesn't, he lasts like five minutes if he's lucky. He at least gets a name in the tie-in novel. Can I just tell, just like, let's all just hold this name, okay? Yeah. Yeah. Okay.
4: okay. Yep. His name is Robert Paulson. <laughs> 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 I really hope it is. <laughs> It'd be amazing, wouldn't it? Come on, Alan.
3: Finish sh- in the in the Thai novelization he at last gets his due. He plays William Okafor. Spell- so can you wi- spell
4: that?
3: O K A F O R Okay. Okafor. Okafor. He Something. plays.
0: Uh, yeah, according to the IMDb, he's school principal, which means he would qualify to be in our man on train feature in. Uh, well, there you go. But, <laughs> in but but the magazine, we um, salute
3: you anyway, and and better luck getting more screen time next time.
0: I I think he'll be all right. Uh, I think you are talking about Oscar nominations. Of course. I think he's going to get one, and possibly even win it for uh, for Martin Luther King in Selma. Thank so
4: goodness. we shall see. Of course, who knows? So yeah, what was the point of Tover Grace's character? It just—I well, mean, uh, okay, this just—if you're just I talking about plot this... constructs, okay. We know that that um, Murph has children, yeah, right, and grandchildren. Mm-hmm. There are descendants to for Cooper and Murph. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, I think he's—he's he's the you know the sperm donor <laughs> in this scenario. Oh my word! Uh, <laughs> I think I think that uh, we're seeing a, we're seeing her life in fragments and he's hes just that we're seeing there the man she falls in love with, except we're not seeing the whole story. Yeah. yeah.
3: It also makes her look less like an alone weirdo. If she's still <laughs> resentful of her dad and hanging out with Michael Caine, she might look like a bit of a weirdo otherwise. Mm. Precisely.
0: And also, I think the... the the way the question is phrased basically if this character was played by anyone else other than Topher Grace it was played by just a jobbing character actor that we'd never <laughs> seen before people would be going oh cool that's the guy but because it's Topher Grace people are going who's a- in no way a jobbing character who's actor who's no way a jobbing character <laughs> actor uh, it just takes him out of the film a little bit for a second everyone's going mm-hmm. it's that guy from the seven, that 70s show or you know it, 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 what's Venom doing in Interstellar does anyone ever associate Topher Grace <laughs> no. with Venom anymore but uh, yeah I think it was it's okay well handled yeah Yeah, absolutely Connor Jackson also asks how old was Cooper when he left because Jessica Chastain does not look his age (laughs) in film she says at one point I'm the same age you were when you left
3: yeah totally fair McConaughey's clearly in his mid-40s now, I think possibly because of the losing weight in the uh, for Dallas Buyers Club. He looks his age now, and she doesn't even look 36, which is her actual age.
0: Question from James Turner, regarding Interstellar, thank you. Uh, if NASA has developed the AI we see in the film that's, that's as intelligent as Case and TARS, why didn't Cooper question why they haven't just created an army of robots to send up to space instead of humans to find a habitable the planet? They don't have the
4: resources, they make that quite clear.
3: They also answer that, they say that the the robots, because they don't have a self-preservation instinct, don't go quite as far. They also oh, because th- There's the whole yeah. thing about you yeah. see your children before you die, therefore you push a little bit harder to survive, mm-hmm. um, and the robots don't have that.
0: Ben John asks, why didn't the guy with the beard, aka uh, Wes Bentley, get in the ship and wait for
4: Hathaway and the robot there run outside, he could have lived? What would you do? I'm just, just trying to imagine. I'm not sure what I would do, but if I was on some other planet and I just discovered that there was this massive, gigantic, 4,000 feet high tidal wave coming at me, mm-hmm. I might not be making exactly the right decision for every moment along the way. It might be a little bit pressured. You might make a mistake and that mistake might be fatal. A little bit snarky. Well, you know, I'm just it, hole picking. Think, <laughs> Wormhole picking. Yeah, I think Black the, the, the,
0: hole picking. the wave hits him a bit faster than I think they anticipated. Doesn't it? Yeah. 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 Just, Perhaps
2: he's being part gallant, part ditherer. Oh, I should say yeah. Van Hathaway. Oh, but I'd rather go inside.
4: Oh, but, you know, and he dithers yeah. about and then gets killed. Yeah. Mistakes were made. People died. it's just like a regular podcast (laughs) Uh, Robbie Wilkinson asks we're burning
0: through the questions now I know Jonah Nolan wrote the screenplay and it was originally set for Spielberg to direct Hmm. Uh, but do you think that has a feeling of Nolan getting the script going over it and adding in his own thoughts and ideas (laughs) at the expense of a neater narrative some parts felt a bit undeveloped
3: well, having read the this orig- what we think is the original script, or certainly a finished draft that went out, it's it's not exactly like it's it's much more commercial or much more obvious. I think in a lot of what it does, it's still pretty out there, and in, in and it deals with a lot of the same issues about wormholes, black holes, orbit, time, uh, the bulk, hmm. the brain,
4: hmm. um, the tesseract,
3: the tesseract, sort of. Does it? Or is not that? Right or is that, that's right. that's, is that all that's new? That's, that's new. That's interesting. Okay. Although there's this whole thing in another place what it does have is life under the surface of the ice world a lot of life a really interesting life which i would have liked to see actually um i wonder if maybe you know they kind of couldn't figure out a way to make that look interesting and not pandora like Mm. um i wonder if they were worried about the way that that develops in the film i don't know or if they just wanted to focus on people um, but there were some really interesting, not aliens in the sense of, you know, big eyes and experiments, but aliens in the sense of alien ecology which would have been quite cool to see
4: yeah i mean i like the fact that um it's such a such a humanist film it is about humanity and even the you know fifth dimensional beings the bulk beings it's 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 guessed that they are human so it's you know it's a film about our ability to to solve and you know surpass problems as a species there so there are no alien creatures and there is you know no god you know there's no deus ex machina here what i like to say is there's homo ex machina and i i really like that and i i think that's something that feels more nolan to me than it would does spielberg i as i say i haven't read this first version of the scripts but i'm very interested by what helen's saying i i wonder if a spielberg version may have had a, a bit more uh Shall we say mystery
0: well, I'll tell you what Spielberg first wouldn't have had Hans a Simmer thrashing away at a church organ I like that to so picture was an amazing score I like to picture Hans Simmer nude at the church
4: organ am I alone right. in this yes a bit like Terry Jones and Monty Python yes because you're, you're just thinking of Terry <laughs> Jones with his hair up in air. Yeah. you're like, putting Hans Simmer's face on it can you just imagine Hans Simmer
3: really just hammering away at his organ there were moments when it was great um, I will say about uh, in terms of Spielberg and, and Nolan and and uh, the way that the script has changed, Spielberg might have shied away from this a little bit because some of the scenes in what I read felt very Spielbergian. Mm. They felt like stuff he did for Close Encounters and ET, mm. um, and and therefore they've lost some of that. But but some of the early stuff really feels very very Spielbergy, uh, which might be why he kind of moved away in the end.
0: Dan, your take on the film is that there is no God in the film, and it's mm-hmm. it's a. Um, not an atheistic I I like to
4: say humanist humanist really
0: Uh, but there is uh, there is a theory out there in the internet I mean Chris Nolan I believe was raised Catholic I don't know whether he believes in God or not but there is a theory on the internet that's fairly compelling that LaCoupe is a Christ figure the project is called Lazarus for one thing, at one point, yeah. uh, at one point, they literally bring Matt Damon back from the dead. He hammers that one home with a bit of dialogue as well. There are twelve astronauts, a.k.a. or disciples, who are sent out okay. originally to bring life to oh, And right. Matt Damon Coop is, is, is the one who does. And Matt Damon is Judas. There is that reading. What do you? What do you? What do you? What do you? A that one? That's a very
4: interesting reading. There's a very interesting reading. I, 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 I would have to. Have, now I've heard the reading. I'm very interested to rewatch the film with that reading in my head and see whether it holds. I mean, I would say though. Um, you know, I I had a big theory about the design of the uh, the endurance representing a clock because it's twelve pods, mm-hmm. the number twelve is significant. But I mm-hmm. thought the number twelve is significant because, you know, you've got the watch which is very significant to the plot, and of course it represents the watch. I put this to both uh, the production designer Nathan Crowley and Nolan himself, and they were just like, no, it was just it, it was just it worked out of that number. You needed three different kinds of pods, you know, and we needed it, and it worked out as twelve and this kind of thing. And I and I and I still think. There should be significance there, so that's you know mm. I don't necessarily think that that's something that Nolan put in it or the Nolans put in it, but that's something that someone's taken out of it.
3: Interesting, the, the twelve people in the twelve worlds that that wasn't in the original script. There were probes that went out to I, I think it was an unspecified number, but there weren't actual people sent to all those world, worlds, um, which which may tend to support your theory. I, I mean, I was raised Catholic and I'm not. And I think it it tends to colour your colour your iconography maybe. So it may be a slightly unintentional parallel. But what I do think that it's a completely legitimate reading of this film Hmm. because they are so non they 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 suggest very strongly that it's man, future man in the wormhole. Man with one end, not two. Um but you could absolutely read that as God if you if you go into that with that in your mind.
0: Of course, what are the what's what's brand doing at the end with all those those embryos? But virgin birth on a massive scale, as well. I'm just going to throw that one out there and let that, that baker noodle for a while as well. Okay. Uh, Here's so the, what? So
4: what are the robots? The robots? Are they are they the the, the two tablets with the with five commandments each or something? <laughs>
0: yes. <laughs> John Lithgow is one of the three wise men. Tarzan Case are the other two.
4: Okay. All right then. And who's David Oyelowo? He's the school principal. Dan, we've discussed. Okay. Sorry.
3: William Okafor <laughs> Yes.
4: Or he could be the the um
0: the people in the temple.
3: The tax, the moneylenders, and yes, temple. the
0: money lenders and uh, people pushing. Wait, I can. Is it Bible, right? False prophets, because uh-huh. he's he's peddling something to the masses that Jesus. Because I just aka like to say Coop, the, look like. the look on James's the
4: look on James's face, staring at Chris right now. James, who who is studied is withering the very theology definition of withering
0: at university, and that's let's put this in the podcast. Let's put this on record, Jimbo. You study theology at university I purely did. so you can have arguments with people. This is right, That's not entirely untrue. <laughs> uh, explain. I'm a lot of
2: fun to be around. Uh, no, I used to have a lot of, uh, a lot of, uh, uh, shall we say, debates on this particular subject when I was a teenager, and as such, I devoted three years of my life to reading theology at universities so that I was better equipped to grind them into intellectual <laughs> dust. So, what's your take on the uh, the Cooper's Christ theory? Uh, I, I, I think it's it's yeah, I think Helen's not wrong. I think a lot of this stuff does colour your thinking, but it's very easy. I mean, everything's a Christ analogy if you look hard enough. Yeah. You know, you can refer everything back to biblical stories, but then if you start you know, trawling through Jungian architect, there are no original stories, and everything is based off one of the few story archetypes which you can interpret in a number of different
0: ways. So.
3: Of course, Christopher Nolan did produce Man of Steel, which is the biggest Christ metaphor of recent times.
0: Oh, Superman Returns is a much bigger Christ
3: metaphor. Oh, I don't Man know. And he yeah. likes
0: E.T.,
2: which is also a Christ metaphor.
3: Yeah, that's true. But no, Man of Steel with the floating out of the spaceship in a, in a cruciform. He does style. it. He
0: does the same with Superman Transper. He the, literally dies and comes back to life, and he falls to Earth yeah. in the Christ uh, in okay. the case of
3: Both the Superman films of recent <laughs> times of this century have been giant Christ metaphors. But the point is, Chris Nolan produced one of them, so maybe he does have that somewhere in his makeup.
2: Maybe. Ooh.
3: Maybe. I don't mean to imply he wears makeup. I mean his composition. We understood. <laughs> I don't mean an essay. I mean in his. I thought a bit of
0: makeup with that suit of his would would go very nicely. Very dark. Uh Stephen Ryan asks, um, "The Earth is down to one crop." And this is nitpicking. We're talking about nitpicking here, okay?
4: Is this going to make me cross? Yes.
0: <laughs> the Earth is down to one crop. This was on a Fulcher. Uh, Fulcher did a nineteen. 19- plot holes from mm. Interstellar most of which weren't even plot holes anyway Stephen Ryan says the earth down to one crop which is corn how come Cooper is able to drink beer then I'm not sure I've ever heard of a corn brewery or his Bud Light <laughs> Cam claimed all rights to the wheat both two people are pointing at me now honestly Helen is- this
4: is answered this is
0: answered <laughs> Helen has the answer in Helen her hand Helen has the Interstellar tie novelization written by
3: written by um greg keys yes hello greg uh based on of course the screenplay by the nolan brothers in the novelization it does specify he's drinking corn beer now you might reasonably say if there is such a food shortage what are they doing making beer out of corn instead of eating it i, I would I say to say you that. no you wouldn't as an as a teetotaler i would um but i guess it is not entirely unreasonable that people might still want to drink
4: I think getting drunk would be very helpful in that scenario.
3: I guess so. I was
0: very interested by the world that Nolan constructed, a world in which technology was very, very much on the back burner and they they took solace in things like all-American proceeds like baseball. Uh, It it seemed to be a world in which... there was no entertainment industry. You know, very baseball, few things survived, mm-hmm. I guess. So, but you know, it didn't seem to be to be a world in which Nolan himself would thrive necessarily. Yeah.
3: It, it wasn't. I mean, baseball wasn't exactly thriving. That was the New York Yankees.
0: Yeah, yeah. I was going to say.
3: Um, so, I think that's. I think that's fair. It was a weird world. I mean, as I say, I had a problem with this idea that humanity would move away from science when faced with disaster, because historically we've done the opposite, um, and and that seemed odd to me. Um, I think we're meant to think that the population's down to about a billion. There's there's a, there's a mm, half a mention yeah, of yeah. of lots and lots of people dying. Obviously, lots of crops have already gone. I mean, I'll leave it to biologists to say whether it's realistic that a blight could strike so many crops at once. But the way the world is going, that's probably conceivable. But it is, it's a weird construct because, you know, on one hand, food is really short. On the other hand, he drives a frickin' truck through his cornfields. Uh, which seems like a, an incredibly irresponsible thing to do mm. if you're a farmer, and food is really needed that badly.
0: To find a probe, which I uh, I believe in the original script played a much bigger part—the finding of that probe—it yes. It led directly to him finding NASA. Whereas in the film,
4: it feels almost like it didn't go anywhere. That idea yeah, of, of, of the probe, yeah. but you know so, it, you again, know. Give, it sells the idea of it being a kind of a scavenger culture by that point. Yeah, you know, people like Cooper who are few and far between see value in these you know these assets that. are falling out of the sky, literally. There's also that really nice little character beat from Murph where she's like, can, can we just leave it? Can we, you know, I feel sorry for it. Yeah. If, you know, she actually, you know, uh, mm. anthropomorphizes the drone a bit. Like, why, why don't we just let it carry on flying? Which, which... I'm, you know, I haven't quite figured out in my head how that feeds into the character, yeah. it, really, it was a really nice little moment
3: There's a very strong suggestion in the original script which I don't feel, to me anyway, didn't come across in the film, uh, that the drone was kind of drawn down to investigate the signals coming through her bookcase so the drone is acting the same way that the Combine Harvesters are yeah. when they come when they're drawn up to the farmhouse well, they're yeah, drawn that's, by that's that the, the,
4: gravita- the gravitational anomaly yes. working the same thing that brought Cooper down at the very beginning of the film and Um, And also, of course, was Cooper's message at the end. Mm.
2: We are overlooking, of course, the underlying point of the entire film, which is that people should read more. Yeah. The the centre of the universe, the gravitational centre of the universe is, in fact, a bookcase. Yes. which has Stephen King's The Stand on it and also James Elroy's The Big Nowhere there you go read these books that's what Nolan's telling you mm-hmm. read them now these are on a young girl's bookshelf as well,
4: well <laughs> they, they, quite the, the, the house library yeah. was her bedroom Okay,
3: it's meant to be her mum's bookcase originally like
4: Yeah. Okay. Okay. McLaren
0: asked in which town city does the Cooper family reside uh, is their home meant to be in New York because they're at the Yankee Stadium they're, they're seeing the New York Yankees uh, but there seems to be a it's a small town. So yep. where where is the, geog- the geography of this?
3: They're traveling. I think they're meant to be somewhere around Colorado because in the novelization, they go to uh, NASA's base at NORAD, and that's made explicit. That's Cheyenne Mountain in uh, Colorado. Oh. Um, I think he's meant to be somewhere in that vicinity they also in in the script or in the original script they fly to I think it's Santa Cruz Island off the coast of LA so he's meant to be certainly western states but he has a small plane in the original script which is okay. interesting it's not just a drive away
2: but perhaps more importantly Cheyenne Mountain also have the home of Stargate Command so, well yeah. there you go
3: so he could Good have just know. gone through the Stargate and got himself, well, saved exactly. himself a lot of trouble exactly. what if
0: they'd gone to
4: Devil's Tower I can you imagine <laughs> uh, he did I'd go through a Stargate
3: he did yes he did just wasn't you know but you
4: know if if they had
0: one to hand surely they wouldn't have had to go to Saturn just saying Okay. So James, you've watched a lot of episodes of Star Trek. Helen, you've watched a lot of episodes of Star Trek. Dan, you've you've immersed yourself in the science of Interstellar by Kip Thorne. So available a, in all good bookshops uh, now. Indeed. For uh, uh yeah, eight ninety nine or something. Uh You'd there's be lucky. Uh, whatever. What is it gonna, what's it cost? What's it cost?
4: There's no recommended re- it's it's it's, it's twenty four dollars ninety five USA. Twenty four dollars ninety five
0: <laughs> USA. If you go into any bookstore with American dollars, they yeah. will take that. Uh, okay, so here's a big science question for you, science boffins. And this is from Luke Thornhill, who says, uh, I'm sure you're as clueless as I am. Thanks a bunch, Luke, oh. I am. Uh, but I wondered in your research and discussion, you may have figured out, number one, is it possible for a difference in gravity to actually slow down time and the <laughs> ageing process as much as it did in the film? Dan is got his hand pumping in the air
4: like hand simmer on a church organ. Yes, Right, Let's Dan. take the first one. Yes, it's absolute scientific fact that uh, gravity and time affect each other. Mm. The higher the gravity, the slower the time. Because time is relative. You can actually measure time you know to, to microseconds in the basement of a skyscraper and time the, the the watch will move more slowly than a watch on the roof of a skyscraper
5: that is fractionally,
4: true. fractionally. Fr- Yeah, it's tiny time we're talking millionths of microseconds you're not going to miss here. the british bake-off if you're but sitting in a basement but nolan nolan actually <laughs> said to kip thorne he actually said i need it to be so that one hour on miller's planet is the equivalent of seven years on earth and Kip Thorne was like, uh, right, I don't think we, I don't think we can do that. And, and I said, well, the story, the story, it has to be in the story. How, how do you figure that out? And Kip Thorne did all his whatever magic, magic equation making stuff. He did Siri, and f- and make it to yes. one hour, <laughs> and <laughs> figured out that for that to be possible, Gargantua would have to spin at the highest possible speed a black hole can spin mm-hmm. in order to create the a level of gravity that would affect Miller's planet in such a way that one hour there would be equivalent of seven hours on Earth. Seven years. Sorry, seven years on Earth. Yes, you're right. So the black hole then isn't that gentle. It doesn't sound is gentle.
0: It, it doesn't sound gentle. So this is very aggressive. aggressive. The singularity
4: is gentle, but the black hole
0: spins very fast. Do not go no. gentle into that good black hole. That's right.
3: Okay, so it's a it's a very 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 specific black hole, and and the mass of gravity that causes that slowdown of time wouldn't tear Miller's planet apart. Is that what you're telling us? It
4: uh, well, this again. This is this is Kip. One of Kip's questions sure. that he found an answer. He theorises that the planet would actually be kind of squished. It okay. wouldn't it wouldn't because of the forces, the well, gravitational forces. Ours is forces. kind of slightly squished. Yeah, as well. but even more so. Okay. And of course, that also explains the huge waves. Okay, that, that sort of tear across the planet as well.
3: As long as he's got the numbers, I'll trust him. Yes. Just.
0: Well, what I find interesting about it is is that scientists. It's got scientists arguing amongst themselves because sometimes there can be no consensus lots of scientists mm-hmm. differ on a lot of stuff so Neil deGrasse Tyson the, the brilliant mm. uh, science, American scientist has uh, basically said on Twitter yesterday you would never get me you're a black hole I mean that I would know. Um but I think he actually did say something about
3: it. he clearly believes in spaghettification yeah. yeah
0: he says never look to me for opinions in new films all I do is highlight the science one might or might not find within them I was just going to ask about uh, from that as well the idea of time and the ageing process uh, possibly one of the reasons why you're talking about the black hole being very, very specific but presumably the future humans put the wormhole there because that was the right sure. planet so they, they put it there so that we would find it deliberately but we're going back to paradoxes here and uh, um, and Jimbo, there are there's two kinds of time travel paradoxes in films. Take yes, sure. and well, we go back to Terry Pratchett with this.
2: Uh, yes, there's obviously linear time travel, whereby there's a, there's a single timeline, and obviously anything you do further back on the timeline affects what happens later in the timeline. Or there's the trousers of time model, whereupon any time you make a change back in the path, it splits off a different reality, uh, thereby not affecting
0: the timeline possibly that you came from. Mm-hmm. Uh, this would tend to adhere to the former model. Because a lot of people are asking how the the future humans can put a wormhole there, because that's dependent on Coop succeeding in his uh, endeavours, which are only made possible by the future humans. That said, and this is something which is addressed quite at length in Deep Space Nine, uh, and uh,
2: and that's that time isn't necessarily linear in that way, that all time could, in fact take place simultaneously, it all happens at once. We simply experience it in a linear fashion, in that we are born, time passes, and we die. Whereas who should say all time doesn't happen simultaneously, and yet people experience it in different ways. I think the wormhole aliens expressed it slightly more articulately than that, but that's basically the gist.
3: I mean, Basically, we live in sort of, we experience life in four dimensions. So Mm -hmm. we we have three dimensions of our own, and then we move through time in one linear, that, that is the fourth dimension. We move through that in a linear fashion. If if these beings are fifth dimensional beings, which is the theory,
4: outside time,
3: outside time, they can manipulate time itself. Yeah. It's like looking
4: uh, down on time on Google Earth. It also, it's not strictly speaking time travel because no. two of the um, well, one of the one big rule set down for the film, like the you know the rules of the drama, was that you physical objects and light cannot travel back in time, mm. but gravity can. Gravity can so what's happening at the end there is cooper's going into a tesseract or hypercube which is a four-dimensional object moving outside of the brain through the bulk to dock Mm -hmm. with murphy's bedroom wall right okay Okay. Yeah. yeah but he's experiencing murphy's bedroom outside of the four dimensions that we experience so As Helen said, he's kind of seeing everything simultaneously depending on which direction he looks within the Tesseract. He can see Murph as a child, he can see Murph as an adult, but of course it takes him a little while to orient himself. So the first thing he's doing is banging on the books, isn't he? And that creates the gravitational waves that push the book off the shelf. And then he figures out how he can move around within the the Tesseract to effectively dock with different points in time as Murph is experiencing it. But he's not actually travelled in time within our universe. Mm. At he all. is simply affecting the timeline in the past, as opposed to going yes. into the past. Yes. Yes. So you know the, that that whole paradox thing, a kind of in a weird way, just does not apply because that's just how it is. Well, yes. the wormhole, but they, but he, he, he lives in a world where the wormhole exists. But
0: without him, if he doesn't succeed, then the wormhole wouldn't succeed. The paradox persists exist. if you believe
2: that time is linear and there's a single timeline. Because obviously, if he he would never have gone into space if he hadn't already been into space, to, you know, to affect yeah. himself, given himself the coordinates. So yes, there is a paradox there. But
0: you know, I'm sure I'm sure a lot of people, uh, probably in this room and a lot of people who are watching the film, guessed at some point fairly early in the film that the ghost that was causing the anomalies yes. in Murph's bedroom we live to become the ghost of our children's future. Could but um it's interesting one of the one of the things the Fulcher uh, um, piece about the plot holes was that they went well why does coop the first thing coop does when he gets into the tesseract is he says he bangs out the message stay and who is he sending it to well he sent it to himself because he doesn't think that he's going to live beyond that and he doesn't want to to die in a black mm. hole it's that seemed fairly obvious to me yeah it's, it? it's an yeah. emotion
4: it's an emotional response you, you notice how during the scene he gets more composed he, first of all he's just angrily banging and then he's like screaming at himself mm. and then he gradually becomes more and more and more composed until he reaches the point where he can transmit the uh, the gravitational quantum data yeah. through the Morse code I didn't think it was about watch. death I didn't
2: think it was saying stay you're going to die I thought it was stay don't leave her yeah it was, yeah. Yeah. So it was stay, very much about don't leave her it's all pointless stay yeah, with your daughter absolutely
0: me, I mean we could probably talk about this movie for weeks hmm. but time <laughs> Is against us? Or is it uh, gravity? Mm. Or is it gravity? I don't know. It's just like that one hour felt like seven years to me. <laughs> Imagine what it's like to people listening to this. Imagine what it's like back in the office. <laughs> okay, so uh, it's that's enough from us wittering on uh, and now it's time to hear from Jessica Chastain who of course plays Murph, the grown-up daughter of Matthew B. Hayes Coop in the film She Was Talking to James and Helen when she came to London recently. Enjoy.
2: Well, welcome to the Empire Podcast, Jessica Chastain.
5: Thank you very much.
0: We can say now, I think, who you play
2: in the film which is uh, the grown-up version of Matthew McConaughey's daughter. Is that, has that been a difficult thing, that you've been working on a film and you haven't really been able to tell anyone what it is you're doing? <laughs>
5: You know, it's a strange thing uh, where, for some reason, I get always get cast in movies that uh, I have to keep such a secret. Zero Dark Thirty was the most difficult <laughs> because for the longest time, people were saying that I was playing one of the SEAL's uh, wives. And every time I heard that, I was like, oh, no, she's actually I'm the girl who finds him. But um, I had to hold my tongue, And so it's the same thing with this. Um, I mean, it's pretty, you know, in the trailer, it's kind of starting to get obvious. So... And as the movie comes out people are talking about it. So yes, mm-hmm. I play Murph. Did you work with Mackenzie all and like you know, just
3: developing the same kind of physicality or the same accent or anything like that?
5: Yeah, we um in it was something Chris really uh was supportive of and recommended, in fact, is that Mackenzie and I hang out mm-hmm. on set, you know, so we'd be like hanging out in a trailer and talking about the character and um mm-hmm. You know, who she is as a child and what her favorite subjects are, um, how she feels about her father, how she feels about her brother, how she feels about her grandpa. You know, so we had this base of who the, the little girl is, who, who Murph is. Even things about little mannerisms that we do with our hands or how we'd wear our hair and even stick, the, the way in which we would stick a pencil in our hair. Things like that we worked on ahead of time. Um, I mean, she's, she kind of starts
3: off, when we see her as a, as a child, she's kind of a, a rebel in a way, yeah. you know, she's already getting suspended from school and stuff. So I guess that sort of carries With through. With the help she's of her s- father, she's getting <laughs> <Yeah>, suspended <laughs> at school. But she's got this sort of just determination and, and kind of some kind of, you know, self-belief, I guess, while still being at, at the same time quite, I don't know, tormented and torn up inside by this whole father-daughter relationship. Mm-hmm.
5: Well, you know... Um, Murph as a child and played by Mackenzie is is definitely a more open, pure person before mm-hmm. any traumatic events had happened in, in her life. Her father's are is her entire world and, you know, how she feels different in school or how the beliefs that she has and the things that she's interested in are okay because they're the same things her father is interested Mm. in and they both kind of buck the norm in society so when he disappears from her life it's um it challenges who she is and it also challenges her beliefs in love and that's when I come into (laughs) to the picture but you know when we meet me I'm working as an astrophysicist and dealing with the agricultural crisis on earth and Murph, by then, has been hiding behind physics. She uses it as a barrier to prevent connections with people. And strangely, through her work in physics, she becomes open to ideas that she had as a child and open to the idea that love is a thing that travels through space and time. And just because someone leaves you doesn't mean that they're not with you.
2: The scene where we first introduced Murph as you is, I would say, probably the film's most emotionally... Powerful sequence. I mean, what did you think when you first read that part in the script?
5: I could tell on the page it was very powerful. I don't. I mean, it's a tough thing to give away um, to talk about. But uh, I mean, I knew even filming it. I, I filmed it on the first day um, on set for myself as an actor. I like to work with other actors. I'm. I. I use that as you know how I'm going to play a scene, what they're doing, and it was a situation where my scene partner is actually a camera and I don't have anything to react to. But it was perfect for the Mm -hmm. character. She's desperately, even through anger and um, hurt she's looking for a connection there is none to be had in a camera lens Mm.
3: there's an echo in the script i guess between the idea of of leaving the nest and it's both a sort of an individual idea of you know especially i would say for Murph, um but also the sort of the humanity going off and to look for somewhere new and and, you know mcconaughey's mission and so Mm -hmm. on It's it's a sort of a your 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 role is almost a microcosm of of the whole story of the film at the same same time as being a personal journey.
5: Yeah, that's that's interesting that you say that. What I love about my character is that she is not the puppet of the male protagonist in the film. In a way, I feel like I'm in a completely different movie. Yes, she carries around with her the trauma mm-hmm. of this absence of this, this person in her life, but she's actively participating in changing her world. And even with the help of um, some information from certain people, (laughs) she is the one who um, is very independent and is able to accomplish things on her own.
2: The whole film, essentially, the the through line is that sort of father-daughter relationship, which Mm -hmm. I think obviously we've spoken about before, Christopher Nolan shot the film under Flora's letter and that's essentially what the film is. What did you make of that? I mean, did you speak to Chris about that? Because it's so, it is so central (laughs) to it.
5: I didn't, in fact, You know, my character is very isolated Mm. and Chris and I never had a one on one, which is strange as I'm talking to everyone during press. They're all telling me about their one on ones with him (laughs) um, before even starting the film. And I met him at a costume fitting. And then, you know, we discussed during a a hair makeup test, but we never were like alone sitting, having coffee, talking about this character. And I wonder if part of that was on purpose Mm. because the character really is completely isolated in a way. Uh, so I never asked him about the personal things in, within the script. And I didn't even realize how personal it was until, <laughs> as an actor, I believe every actor is a, a little bit of a detective. You look at the crew, <laughs> the clues in the dialogue and in the script to try to find your person. You find your man. And um, when I met uh, the little girl on set and she told me she was Chris's daughter and, and that her name was Flora, immediately everything fell into place. Mm-hmm. When I realized, oh, wait a minute, that's the name on our production uh, company Um, and so I just started saying that now I'm like well that's when everything opened up for my character and then at one point there was a press conference when someone brought it up and I said right next to Chris I said I've actually never even spoken to him about this or discussed it it was just this thing that I realized on my own I don't think it's a coincidence Um, it it, um, I believe it's a very very personal film for him but of course he has four children (laughs) in total (laughs) and um it's a it's a love letter to all of his children. Yeah. I think he's he's named other films after after the boys. Oh, already. really? It was
3: Magnus Rex was one. Yeah, that's right. Rory's First Kiss was the working title of Dark Knight. So <laughs> he, he's not leaving anybody out, I don't Good. think. <laughs> um, but it's interesting, actually, because it's, it's quite rare to have father-daughter stories. You know, yeah. lots, I mean, endless father-son stories in cinema. The occasional
5: mother-daughter. But it's it's quite a rare thing, really. It's very rare. I I mean... It's a, it's a major literary theme uh, in novels and in, you know, books. The father-son relationship and the son becoming a man and, you know, that that journey. But you rarely see the father-daughter relationship. And it's such an important one. it's I mean, the father is the man that every woman measures all men against. Um uh, And the father is the protector of his daughter. You know, there's a very, there's a beautiful relationship there between the two. When the script first came to Chris, um, Murph was written as a son. uh, And he decided to change it to a woman. I was so glad he did.
3: Were you jealous at all that you didn't get a
5: a space suit? (laughs) (laughs) Do you know? I wasn't at all because, you know, yes, it's a thrilling space exploration film, but the heart of the film is the father daughter yep. and to be a part of that storyline was really special but i my next film i'm gonna go play an astronaut <laughs> so i get to do that later that's for ridley scott isn't it yeah yes yeah, <laughs> i actually wanted to ask about a few of your upcoming films just
3: while we have you mm-hmm. um marilyn monroe in blonde mm-hmm. i mean i'm a huge huge fan of hers is there uh, what's your favorite film of hers oh gosh
5: my favorite film is probably *Bus Stop*. Okay. Uh, I, I love Niagara also it's probably the ones that are the least famous mm-hmm. I also like don't bother to knock because it's a very dark character mm-hmm. she plays but what I responded to so much about working with Andrew Dominic, was, first of all I love Andrew Dominic as a director but it's not a typical okay let's do a Marilyn Monroe biopic it's an incredible novel by jo- Joyce Carol Oates mm-hmm. uh and I believe it to be a very feminist novel, about the archetype of the blonde. And yes, who is the quintessential blonde? Uh, It's Marilyn Monroe. Mm -hmm. So it happens to be about her, but um, I'm excited about the collaboration with um, Joyce Carol Oates, the novel, and Andrew Dominic. Absolutely.
2: You are, however, in Crimson Peak. Which I am very in Crimson Peak. Uh,
5: it's the second time I've worked with Guillermo del Toro. Yeah. First time um, with him as a director, which I was really stoked about. Uh, and I play a character unlike anything I have ever done before. And it was it was a huge... Um, it's probably it's the biggest challenge I've ever had. In fact, so much so and you'll see it you you'll see it you'll understand when you guys see the film that when I first arrived on set and I was kind of I was doing some readings with my accent coach and everything, I thought, ooh, I don't know. I'm not I'm not there yet. So I like completely plastered my trailer with <laughs> images and when you see the film you'll understand you stand the kind of images, but like images that would inspire the things my character does. And it was a very dark experience for four months. <laughs>
3: Is it as as visually yes. out there as, as we can
5: expect from? Doldora? Yeah, he built a four story house inside the Pacific Rim, um, soundstage. I've, I mean, I imagine it's how they used to make movies. Yeah. All the walls move. Um, I mean, a complete the, the house is a character in the film, and I mean to be on set with Tom Hiddleston, Mia Walsh Acosta, Charlie Hunnam. Um, Jim Beaver, it's, it's, I think the cast is really
3: exciting. And very finally, because we are wrapping up, um, we're asking everybody at the moment their favorite film of 2014. It's a very t- t- tough question to answer in some ways, but.
5: Oh, I haven't seen everything. Um, do you know, I really like Foxcatcher. Mm. I saw that in Cannes and that was, I also love Mommy mm. that mm. I saw in Cannes, the Xavier Dolan film. Um, yeah, of course I love boyhood. I can't pick a favorite film because there are so many that I am waiting. I can't wait to see Wild. Um, I wanna see the Hunt the Huntsman, the Hillary Swank film. This is my favorite time of yeah. the year <laughs> yeah. to go to movies. Um, because I, I just it's like Christmas and it lasts four or five months. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you very much. I think we're out of time. Thank, Thank you. Ian.
0: Lovely Jessica Chastain. And that's it for the Interstellar Spoiler Special. Join us every Friday, if you don't already, for the regular Empire podcast. Recommend it very highly. Uh, but we have just two Spoiler Specials left this year. The Hunger Games Mockingjay Part 1, which will be up on November 24th uh, with Director Francis Lawrence. Interviews already happened. Yep. Talks about spoilers a bit more, Lin. He does, yeah. Christopher Nolan. Yep. Interesting so there you go. And The Hobbit, The Battle of the Five Armies, which will be up on December 15th. So bookmark those two dates. Until the next time, it's goodbye from Dan. Goodbye. It's goodbye from James. Goodbye. It's goodbye from Helen.
3: Didlou.
0: I'm off to have a go and handsome organ See you next time.